So watch this. When you've been married as long as I have, you learn a few things. What's really important in love? It's the gifts. Yeah. Love, it is words, it's poetry, it's music, just because. No, love is a simple nod in the direction of the person that you love. That is true love. You don't say anything, you just go, uh, that's love. That, that's how love is. Oh, you're a real Don Juan. <laughs> You don't want to get her lingerie because, well, that just comes across as selfish. Uh... Do you remember what you said to me that won me over? <laughs> remember that night? What did he say? It was New Year's Eve and he didn't want to come to this party. And then all of a sudden, there he is. He runs up to me and says, I came here tonight because when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. So I hate to burst this love bubble, but that was straight out of When Harry Met Sally. Who's Harry? Uh, who's Sally? I, I, I don't know, I don't know. What I do know is, you will make me want to be a better man. Still moving. Love is, uh, love is, it's community, you know? It, it, it's local. We create pyramids that are so universal to make this life stand as it is today. And that makes up the human structure. When are you moving out, Austin? When I feel like it, all right? Just look at me, just look at me and say, Doreen, I love you because of blank. All right. <clears throat> Doreen, I love you because of Blank. Don't get her anything that forces you to ask her size. And whatever you do, don't guesstimate her size. I want to turn your bedroom into my gym! You will not do that! That is my room! That is my space! God, it's my space. Tom was my first friend. You remember Tom? Remember? I love Tom. I loved him. I, I gave him the best two weeks of my life. That first anniversary, we had no money to buy cards, so we, we scrounged up all the coins that we could find and we, we bought ourselves a Snickers bar. We put it on our best plates and we sat at that little kitchen table. We ate like royalty. Still to this day, Whenever there's an anniversary or Valentine's or just because, we celebrate the same way. And it's in these moments that I think about love, our love, the ups and the downs. And I thank God that she said yes to a guy like me. Don't hate me for that, sorry. 
That turned real quick, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'll let you gather yourselves for a second. Uh, uh, yeah, so this morning I want to talk about the idea of staying in love. And just to see if we're all interested in this subject, how many of you, and not necessarily right now, but how many of you have ever in your life ever been in love? Just hold your hand up for a second. So I'm just kind of studying the room. Okay. Yeah, mom says, put your hand up. Okay. Uh, good. Thank you. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting having you sitting right there uh, this morning. Uh, the thing about being in love is that it's a lot easier to fall in love than it is to stay in love. Have you noticed that to be true? Falling in love essentially requires one thing. Falling in love requires one thing, a pulse. In fact, um, if you have a pulse, just if you want to check right now, just to make sure, if you have a pulse, you have the potential to fall in love. In fact, right now, just in the, just in the United States, there are over 1,500 matchmaking websites and apps and dating services, 1,500 of them. It's a $2.5 billion industry in the United States alone. It's ne- I would argue that it's never been easier to fall in love because um, there are so many options and there are so many ways for people to get connected. In fact, some of you met online and some of you dated online and that worked for you. Uh, today, uh, we're celebrating mom and dad, Pastor Bob and Barb's uh, 50th wedding anniversary. That's what we're, yeah. My mom and dad were uh, born in uh, Moncton, New Brunswick. If you don't know where that is, there's a little geography lesson for you. And because I've talked to people who are pretty sure Canada is at least six hours away. (laughs) If you get in your car and drive six hours, you've gone past Moncton. Okay, you're in a different province now. So um, Moncton's about four and a half hours from here, a little less, depending on how you like to drive. Joan. No, uh, so uh, they were born two days apart in the same hospital. Oh, yeah, there. Um, they grew up in the same city, went to different elementary schools, but went to the same high school. They were born in an era when hospitals didn't send m- new mothers home within 24 hours, so they spent the first few days of their lives together, there, in the hospital, in the maternity ward in September 1946. Oh. Do you have warm fuzzies right now? That's enough of that. If you, <laughs> you, your story, you may not have fallen in love in the maternity ward, but it's, <laughs> it's just never been easier to find somebody and fall in love if that's the goal, if that's the goal, to fall in love. It's never been easier, but it's, I think it's never been harder to stay in love. And there's something in you and there's something in me that wants to think that there's someone out there if you're not already in a relationship with that person, that there's someone out there that you'd be able to fall in love with and stay in love with till death do you part. In fact, I think one of the questions that our culture is wrestling with is, is it even possible for a person to fall in love and stay in love with that person for a lifetime? Is that even possible? When we look around our culture, when you look around your circle of friends and you look around your extended family, when you look around, maybe you look around this room and you look back at your own experience, you may have come to the conclusion that it's impossible. 
Because maybe for you that opportunity is gone. Maybe you've had a marriage that failed or you've been in a couple marriages or you're in a difficult marriage right now. You're not sure that you're going to make it. Or maybe you're dating someone right now and if you were being honest, you'd have to say that you're kind of forcing the issue right now. You're kind of uh, making, making things happen and you're trying to convince yourself that this is the one. But the idea of the rest of your life, you know what I'm talking about. Is it really possible? Is it even worth shooting for it, falling in love and staying in love for a lifetime? And I'm not talking about just staying together. All of us have met people, you just, you just kind of wish they'd split up already and be done with it and just make life easier on everybody that they come into contact with. You know, they're just so miserable, you know, and and, but by golly, they're going to stay together. I'm not talking this morning about staying together. All you need to do that really is to have a couple of bedrooms in the house and a, and a roll of duct tape where you can put a line down the middle of the house and this is mine, this is yours, and we can share the refrigerator. You can figure out how to stay together. But no one stands at the altar with all of their family and closest friends in their best clothes with a desire and a dream to just stay together and have a roommate. That's not the dream. That's not the goal. The goal is to fall in love and stay in love. So if I were to stand up here and do everything that I could convince you that it's not even possible, that it's a pipe dream, that it's a fantasy, it's not worth shooting for, none of you would believe me. In spite of my best persuasive skills, which are pretty right there, but in spite of what you see in culture, in spite of what you've experienced in your own family maybe, there's nothing... There's something in you and there's something in me that believes that we have the potential to fall in love and stay in love for a lifetime. And I think the reason we continue to hold on to that dream and the reason we continue to hold on to that ideal is because God put that in us. It's part of the image of God in us to find someone. See, it's not enough to, to, to have some bowling partners to be a you know, or that, that's not quite enough, and it's, or to be part of a golf foursome, or it's not enough to be a part of a bridge club, or to be a part of a group that goes out together after work. It's not enough to just Facebook some friends. There's something in us that wants that one person that we do life with. There's something in us that desires that, and the challenge is, is it possible? And the good news is, we all think it's possible, but it's not easy. Falling in love requires a pulse. Staying in love requires a plan. That's what I want to talk about this morning. In fact, if, if, you're, if you're not totally uncomfortable with this, let's say this together. Falling in love requires a pulse. Staying in love requires a plan. Now, the truth is, most people fall in love without a plan. You fell in love and you thought, you know, love will keep us alive. Love is all you need. All you need is love. Love, love, love is all you need. And you thought, yeah. Here's the great news. The Bible, this ancient text, gives us some incredible insight into not simply how to fall in love, but how to stay in love for the long haul. So today, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on your Bible app, I'm going to be in the book of Philippians in chapter 2. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And to set us up for what we're going to read in Philippians in just a minute, I want to start by talking about something that Jesus said. Because these words that Jesus gave us, that later on the Apostle Paul kind of elaborates on, I think this is the key to what it means to stay in love. One day Jesus gathered his guys together and he said, guys, I want to give you a brand new command. A brand new commandment. Now, if I were one of the guys in this group, I probably would have thought, really, Jesus? Another commandment? Do you think we need another commandment? 
I mean, another thou shalt and thou shalt not. I mean, we got the 10 big ones. You know, we got those memorized, Jesus, and we got them on a plaque in our bedroom. So, like, we got that down. And then there are, like, dozens of others. And then the Pharisees, they came along and added a bunch more. And actually, they come up with 612 rules at this point. So, Jesus, I think we're, I think we're, uh, we're okay with that because the truth is we're not very good with the rules we have. So why add more to it? That's what I would have thought. But here's what Jesus says. This is in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. And Matthew and John, they're like writing this down because they know they're having a special experience and they plan to write a book and go on tour. So they're taking notes. And I think they're going, you know, that's it? That's the new commandment? That's really not all that new, Jesus? Like, I think we've heard that before, love one another. Ooh, I don't even need to write that down. But here's what's new about it. Jesus uses a word for love that we usually use as a noun, and he makes it a verb. And I don't know if you're a grammar nerd. A few of us are, and we love this kind of stuff. See, we fall in noun, and Jesus says, I want you to verb one another. If you're Googling right now, what is a noun? I could give you just 30 seconds right now to figure that to go back to fourth grade English, Okay. He says, I want you to start thinking of love as a verb, as an action. In fact, I think this could be, this could be fun to say out loud. So I think we should, uh, yeah, it's on the screen already. So let's just say this together. I want you to... Make love verb. Yeah, don't pause in the middle there. <laughs> oh, it took a minute. The ripple just... Okay. That was classic. Okay. I think Jesus is saying, I'm never going to get you back now, am I? I think Jesus is saying, make love a verb. This is so much more than falling into something that you could easily fall out of. He said, I want you to take this word that you're accustomed to using and to hearing, and I want you to think of it as a verb, as an action, as requiring you to do something. So with a plan, with intentionality, go out there and love one another. The secret to staying in love is to make love a verb. In fact, when you encounter people who have been in love for a long time, when you dig below the surface, you'll find that they have, they may have stumbled or fallen into something, but then they decided to do something. They had the pulse required to fall in love, but then they came up with a plan with ideas to intentionally love one another. And then, oh, and then Jesus doesn't stop there in in John uh, 13. He takes it to another level, and he says, when you begin to love one another, I want you to do it with a brand new standard in mind. Here's what he says in verse 35. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's really, really important. He didn't say, love one another like your parents love one another, even if they're a good example. He didn't say, love one another like you saw your grandparents love one another, although they might have been a good example. It's not love one another the way culture says love one another. No, Jesus says, I want you to to begin to think in a completely different way about love. I want you to think in the terms that I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my husband. I'm going to love them the way Jesus loves me. And he sets a new standard. And a few years after Jesus said this, the Apostle Paul comes along and he takes this idea of how did Jesus love and, and how does that make its way into our relationships? And he elaborates on this. So in Philippians chapter 2, I think we have the most amazing picture of what it means to love. Here's the thing. These verses in Philippians 2 are addressed to Christians, and I believe they're addressed to all Christians. They're meant for all Christians uh, 
past and present and future. And it applies to all of us and it applies to all of our relationships. So for the next few minutes, I want to look at these verses through the lens of the marriage relationship. And whether you've been married for decades or less than five years, whether you're engaged or you would like to be, whether you're single or divorced and you think maybe there's a chance you might fall in love again someday, regardless of your relationship status, what we're going to discover is that is what every couple who's fallen in love and stayed in love has discovered along the way, that love is a verb. And these are really challenging verses. But the reward is, if a man or a woman will embrace these ideas and get super intentional about applying them to their relationships, applying them to their marriage relationship, what you'll discover in a relationship where love needs to be rekindled is that it can be rekindled. In a relationship that's strong and healthy, it can get even stronger and healthier. So let's look at these verses together. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 3. <clears throat> he comes right out of the chute with this, with this really strong exhortation. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing in your relationship out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And the original Greek words mean don't compete with one another. Don't be so competitive. Take the competition out of your relationship. Don't try to one-up. Don't try to outdo one another. Don't keep correcting one another. Take the competition out of the relationship. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, this is, this is one of the most challenging uh, relationship principles in the Bible. In humility, value others above yourselves. Your Bible, depending on the version you're looking at, might say consider others more important than yourself. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in an environment where you've been around someone who is actually more important than you? How many of you have ever been in an environment like that? It's not a trick question. Okay. If your answer to that is no, first of all, you might have an ego situation that is so out of control that I couldn't begin to address it. So that might be, and you're like, well, no one's more important than any. Play along with me, you know what I'm talking about. Because the, the answer is, of course, you've been somewhere in a setting somewhere where someone was more important than you. For instance, if you've ever been to a wedding and you weren't the bride, you've been somewhere where there was somebody more important than you. All right? And the way you know that, and here's how you know that. Did you notice that when you came in to this ceremony and you started down the aisle, no one stood up for you? Did you notice that? <laughs> in some cases, they won't even move over and let you have the better seat on the end, you know? Nope, nope. But when she walks in, everybody stands up and they stay on their feet until someone tells them to sit down. You were not the most important person in the room. Or if you've ever had your boss over for dinner, you ever done that? How many of you ever invited your boss over for dinner and they actually came? All right. Okay, that could just skip this illustration then. Let this be a little instructional, though. I challenge you to invite your boss over for dinner sometime, build a relationship. I assume that more people would have done this. Anyway, if you've ever had your boss over for dinner, here's how it works. Uh, you sit down with your kids first, and you're like, kids, if you don't want this to be the last night of living in this house, here's how you've got to behave, because the boss is coming over for dinner. And you even say to your husband or your wife, let's not bring this up or that. Or let's not talk about this and don't, we should, don't for sure say anything about that. Because here's what we all know. When you are around someone who is more important than you, listen, the goal is not to be right. The goal is to be respectful. Did you get that? When you're in the presence of someone who is more important than you, you, you always defer to them. You listen more. You aren't always correcting them. You don't 
allow yourself to get distracted. You put them first. Now, imagine a relationship where a husband and a wife, where the choice is made, I'm going to treat you as if you are actually more important than me. And I know, I know the pushback. I know. But she's not more important than me. He's not more important than me. That's not, because we're equals in this, this, that's not the issue. Paul says to act as if they are more important than you. And as much as you might push back from that, here's what I know about you. You love to be treated like the most important person in the room, don't you? Our hearts are automatically drawn to environments of acceptance, to environments and relationships where we are treated like we're somebody special. The Apostle Paul says that's how you're to treat each other. Not because they are more important, but we're to treat them as if they are more important. So the result of that is deference and respect and awe. And it's not about being right. The goal isn't to be right. The goal isn't to win. The goal is to be respectful. So you will always want to lean in my direction. If we were to stop right there and you were to examine your marriage relationship or what you hope someday is a marriage relationship, if you were to examine it through that single lens, that could be life-changing. And when you spend time with people who fell in love a long time ago and they've stayed in love and they still passionately love each other, you will discover that this is how they treat one another. And as significant as this principle is, because we could just stop there, Paul goes on because he doesn't stop there. And this is what he says in verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In love, people have made it a habit of expressing an interest in things that they aren't naturally interested in. I don't know about you, but this is hard for me. And it's hard for you too. Let me explain. I am interested. You might want to write this down. I am interested in the things that I am interested in. And I am not interested in the things that do not interest me. It's just a deep introspective time this week, just self-evaluation analysis, and that's what I came up with. Can you identify with that at all? I am naturally interested in certain things. And the things that aren't interested to, interesting to me, I am not interested in them. Paul says, you want to stay in love for the long haul? You want to love the way Jesus loved? You have to make a decision to express interest in things that don't interest you. Because when you show an interest in something that your spouse is interested in that doesn't naturally interest you, when you do that, it provides an opportunity. It provides an opportunity for you to unconditionally love your spouse. And if you can find those opportunities to love, unconditionally love your spouse, you will stay in love. In every marriage relationship, there are things that your spouse is interested in that you have no interest in, that you have expressed no interest in. There are things that he or she is very interested in that hold no fascination for you. And the challenge for us, if we're going to stay in love, is this. Are we willing to take this principle to heart and to learn how to intentionally express interest in things that we're not interested in? In a, in a compromised marriage where people have just decided to just stay together, but they've fallen out of love, Everybody kind of has their own deal, and they have their own hobbies, and they have their own interests, and their own recreation, and their own entertainment, and they never intersect. But when you meet people who've been married for a long time, and they've, they've been empty nesters for a long time, and they are still passionately in love with each other, you'll find that that kind of line doesn't exist in the same way. 
they've learned to express interest, they've learned to cross over. That, and, and what many people discover is that when they cross over into an area that they aren't naturally interested in, guess what they get interested in? Sometimes those very things, but more importantly, they get more interested in the other person. Ever had a conversation with somebody you're just getting to know, and you ask, well, something like, what does your husband do for a living? <laughs> and you get an answer that is so vague that you wonder if they've ever actually met, if they've ever had a conversation. I've had this happen to me, and it just blows my mind. I mean, years ago, we had some friends who were uh, stationed in Winter Harbor at the base, and the, sometimes the wives had no idea, but that was a different deal. They really couldn't know where their husbands would have to kill them, but that was a different kind of deal. Um, <laughs> You get this answer that's so vague. It's something like, well, I'm not really exactly sure. He works at such and such a place. He goes every day. But it's something with computers or wires or electricity. Wait, no, plumbing. It's with something with plumbing, I think. You know, it's like that. I, I don't know how to explain it. I'm like, no, because you have no idea. In other words, I don't know because I'm not that interested. It's not my thing. That's what he does. You want to stay in love? You want to love like Jesus does? You want to stay in love and love like Jesus does for the long haul? And somewhere at some point, you've got to take an interest in some things that aren't interesting to you, not because all of a sudden it's interesting to you, but because you're interested in the one who is interested in this thing. And if you're like, well, yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be nice if she took an interest in my life, if she took an interest in my hobbies and the things that are important to me. That'd be nice. Well, are you taking an interest in the things that interest her? I will when she will. I think we already said, Paul says, stop competing. You got it backwards. And at this point in the passage, because now we're getting deep in here, the temptation is to push back and like, wait, 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 uh, wait, wait. Before you go on, I'd like to come up and tell my sad story. And you can come up, come up here. We've got a, you know, we've got a wireless mic. We could just do the talk show thing, and you can just, we could just have a line of people telling sad stories. And you could tell your sad story about your awful ex-husband, you know. And when you're all done, we'd all decide that, you know what, you're right, you've got a sad story. You, you don't have to do any of this. You get a pass. Philippians 2, just skip over it. But here's a newsflash. Our culture is full of sad stories. Our community is full of sad stories. Your family may be full of sad stories. This church has its share of sad stories. You don't have to get up here and tell me because after 20-whatever, eight years of ministry, I've heard so many variations of the sad story that it's been a long time since I've heard anything new. And because these sad relational stories are so common, that might be why you've begun to ask if you're single or if you're in a dysfunctional relationship, you might be beginning to, be beginning to wonder, is it even possible? Is it really possible to fall in love and stay in love? And the Apostle Paul goes a step further, and he's making reference to the part of Jesus' new command where he says, I want you to love one another, and I want you to love the way I love. Here's what Paul has to say about that, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So when you think about your relationships, approach them the way that Jesus approached his relationships. It's not enough to look around and model everything after mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, although you might be fortunate enough to have had some godly examples of that in your life, and we have lots of that here at Faith Community. And as great as that is, as much as we're celebrating that even today, that's not the standard. No one in your family and no one in this church and, or any church is the standard. We need to be sure that we're taking our cues from Jesus. Verse 6, who, talking about Jesus, being in very nature God, in other words, he really was the most important person in the room, in every room, everywhere he went, okay? 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We really need to pause and look at this verse. Even though Jesus has always been the most important person in every room because he's God, he never leveraged that to his own advantage. He never found himself anywhere in any situation where he said, hey, do you know who I am? I deserve a little more attention here. I deserve to go first. I deserve a little more respect from you. I deserve a little more awe. He never leveraged who he was for his own advantage. But there's something in me and there's something in you. We have a hard time with that. Because somewhere in your world, you're a pretty important person. But the Apostle Paul says when it comes to your relationships, including your marriage relationship, he says we need to think like Jesus. Even though he had every advantage, I mean, he really had it going on. He's a son of God in the flesh, always the most important person in the room. He never leveraged that for his own advantage, but always for the benefit of others. This is what people who fall in love and stay in love do. They figure out how to take all of what makes them such a great person and such an important person, all of their gifts, all their talents, all the things that they could flaunt, and they leverage that for the sake of others and specifically for the sake of their spouse. Verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing. Uh, the New American Standard, uh, I love this, says he emptied himself. I love that. He emptied himself. I love that because it's in contrast to something we say all the time in our culture when we say that someone is full of himself or full of herself. That's, we don't mean that as a compliment, right? They think more of themselves than, than we think of them. And in a relationship, when someone is, is full of themselves, especially if both people are full of themselves, the relationship will eventually self-destruct. So Jesus comes along, and he could have been full of himself. And he made love a verb. He made a decision to empty himself. And Paul says, are you paying attention? Because this is the mindset we need to have. This is how we need to approach all of our relationships, including and especially our marriage relationship. Keep reading verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself. Which means Jesus made the decision to place himself under someone else. Not equal. Not 50-50. You do your part, I'll do my part. No, Jesus, the Son of God, most important person in the room, decided to humble himself, to submit himself, to place himself under. Listen. The most powerful Relationship principle is mutual submission, where both parties submit to the other. Around the same time that Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's the New Testament book of Ephesians. It comes right before Philippians. <clears throat> in that letter, he writes specifically to husbands and wives, and he writes what is most husbands' favorite verse in the Bible right? In Ephesians 5, verse 22, it says, wives, anybody know the next word? Submit, Submit to your husband. Good job, guys. And every man that I know who's been a Christian more than three years knows that verse by heart, first verse he ever memorized, probably. I've had conversations with men, I've had conversations with their wives and or their fiance, with their, you know, with their, and, and often with the women sitting right in the room, and he's like, yeah, but isn't the wife supposed to submit to her husband? 
here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking to myself, first of all, the first word in that, in that verse is wives, and then there's a comma, which means it's addressed to wives, which means it wasn't meant for the husband. So you shouldn't even be reading that. Just skip that. Get to the verse that's addressed to you, because, hey, there's one coming up that's addressed to you. There's a verse that starts with husbands, but the same guy who quotes, wives submit to your husbands, he can't tell me what comes after the word husbands a couple verses later. I've never had a husband quote that verse back to me. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? How? He gave himself up for her in what way? He died, right. I knew you wanted to say it and you just weren't quite sure that's where I was going. He died. You're like, they killed Jesus. No. He gave himself up. What makes, it's funny, we had some conversation uh, Tuesday night at Men's Frat about this very passage. What makes the use and the misuse of this passage in Ephesians 5 so interesting to me is that the verse before these verses, before the verse that says wives, before the verse that says husbands, in verse 21 it sets the whole thing up and it says, anybody know what it says? Ephesians 5, 21, it says that. Submit to one another. Listen, mutual submission is a game changer. There's no way for me to phrase that that didn't sound like an overstatement. Well, mutual submission will radically change the nature of every relationship that you're in. Your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, every relationship. But isn't the husband the head of the home? Paul says that the husband is the head of the home. And we want to stop right there. He said he's the head of the home just like Christ is the head of the church. It has nothing to do with power. It has nothing to do with being in charge. It has nothing to do with having the last word. It has nothing to do with ordering people around. How many times in the gospel does, do you see Jesus getting in a, a crowd around him and ordering them around? Never. How many times do you see him inconveniencing himself and putting his own interests aside and serving people? Always. You know what, whether you believe the Bible or not, whether you take any of this seriously, you can find a couple that fell in love and has stayed in love for the long haul. You will find two people who have discovered the principle of mutual submission. The Apostle Paul says you need to have the same attitude in your relationships that Jesus had. He voluntarily chose to submit himself. Who did he submit himself to? Ultimately, I'd say he submitted himself himself to us, to me, and to you. He decided that your deal is more important than his, than his interest. He decided that your need for forgiveness and your need for restoration in your relationship with the Father was more important than his need for glory or for worship, which he deserved. In other words, he decided that your need for redemption was more important than his need to get what he rightfully deserved. And then he says, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. Well, I think we should start this at home. I think we should start this in our marriages. I think we should start this in in our relationships and our families. Let's get it started there. Paul finishes this up. Let me read verse 8. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. And we struggle with this. This mutual submission thing is too hard. You're asking too much. You don't really understand my situation. Come on. And I think Jesus would say, oh, really? It's hard for you? Hmm. It's hard for you to come home on time? It's hard for you to come home when you say you're going to come home? It's hard for you to listen when your spouse is talking? It's hard for you to unplug and put your phone away? It's hard for you to leave your phone in the car when you go out on a date with your spouse? It's hard for you to take care of some simple household chore without being asked? That's hard for you? Man, that must be rough. Yeah, Jesus, this mutual submission stuff, I don't know, I don't know how you did it. To which he would say, oh, uh, you want to know? I died on a cross. Here's the thing I want, I want us all to get. See, Jesus had a dilemma. I don't know if dilemma is the right word, but he could either get what he deserved or he could get what he wanted, but he couldn't get both. What he deserved was glory. What he deserved was everybody in every room that he walked into bowed down and worshipped him. What he deserved was for Pilate to say, you are the king. Caesar's nothing. You really are the king of kings. What he deserved was honor and glory and worship and praise and surrender. What he wanted was a relationship with you and with me. And he opted for relationship over glory. Jesus opted for relationship over getting what was rightfully his. And he knew he couldn't have both. Listen, you can't have both either. If you're going to stay in love for the long haul, you've got to opt for relationship over getting what you think you deserve. But I'm the breadwinner. I'm the smart one. I'm the decision maker. Well, that's nice. But do you want a relationship with your spouse? Well, when I was growing up, we did it this way. That's interesting. But do you want a relationship with your spouse? Listen, you can't demand what you deserve and get what you want if ultimately you want to stay in love. When you look below the surface of relationships where people have stayed in love for a long time, what you find is nobody's demanding what they deserve. Nobody's demanding their own way. What you'll find is they've opted for the relationship over what they think is rightfully theirs because they've emptied themselves like Jesus did and submitted themselves to one another. Listen, you can win arguments, you can make your point, and you can be right and alienate the person that you love. You can be right every single time and argue your case and all of us would say, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right with the facts, but the way that you said it and the reason you said it and the way that you said it, you have begun to undermine the relationship that you say is important to you because you're trying to get what you think you deserve and you've overlooked the value of the relationship. When you're around someone who's more important than you, the goal is not to be right. The goal is not to win. The goal is not to make your point. The goal is to be respectful. The goal is to add value. The goal is to build up. The goal is to defer. The goal is to make someone else's interests more important than yours. And we have this perfect model. We have the model in Jesus who went to the cross and died for our sin and put our deal ahead of his own refused to take what he deserved because what was most important to him was a relationship with us, a restored relationship with the Father. So Jesus says, and Paul reiterates it, make love a verb. Love one another. Love them the way that I love you. Let me ask you this. 
what would this look like in your life? What would this look like in your relationships? What would it look like in your marriage? I hope you haven't been sitting there elbowing the person next to you for the last half hour and I hope he's hearing this, you know. I hope she's hearing this and you're going to, you know, you're wishing your husband was here and you're going to be the first person at the CD table because you've got a list of people need to hear it and you're going to put one in the CD player of your husband's truck tomorrow morning. <laughs> Bad idea. I'm talking about for you, what does it look like? What does it mean for you? You're the only person I'm talking to. What does it mean to submit to your spouse? What does it mean for you to set aside what you deserve for the sake of your relationship? What would mutual submission look like in your relationship? What does it mean to love your spouse like Jesus loves us? Because this is what we've been called to do. You know what I think? I think the greatest form of evangelism, perhaps the most effective way for us to share our faith with our unbelieving family and friends and coworkers, is to have relationships characterized by humility and by mutual submission. Relationships where we, every one of them, where we love people like Jesus loves us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is uh, so much easier to talk about than it is to do. (laughs) We can sit here and we can take notes and we can speak emphatically and we can nod our heads. Man, this is so hard to put into action. So God, we ask that in your mercy, in your grace, in your wisdom, just give us a clear picture, give us a snapshot maybe of what we're to do differently. Maybe give us a clear picture of what we, the changes we need to make, of what it would mean for us to love our spouse like you have loved us. Father, give us the wisdom to know how to respond to the truth of your word and the courage to do so. In Jesus' name. Listen to this.
gotta show, 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 show me, show, 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 show me, show, 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 show.